Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, we have Chris Buck, an incendiary guitar player from Wales, UK. You've seen him on his very popular YouTube show, Friday Fretworks, and his new band, Cardinal Black, causing all kinds of trouble. Check him out. Chris Buck, ladies and gentlemen, on Chewing the Gristle this week, Gregory Cockery. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, another delicious installment, I'd like to think, of Chewing the Gristle. I have a young man with me today that I've been watching online and just enjoying his musicality and and glorious presentation of his guitar skills. Chris Buck, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome him here. You can hear the applause, cyber <laughs> applause happening. The deafening silence. <laughs> How you doing? Don't worry, I'm used to it. I'm good, thank you, man. I'm keeping busy, so can't complain. Do complain, Absol- but sh- you shouldn't complain, really. So you are absolutely keeping keeping busy. Uh, <laughs> I've been watching uh, the unleashing of your new band, Cardinal Black, and people have been taking to it with great <laughs> enthusiasm, and rightly so. So tell yeah. us a little bit about how that all came together, and yeah. and uh, I mean- how it's going forth. It's the kind of oldest, newest band ever created, I guess, in that, I guess, ostensibly to the outside world, at the very least, we're the better part of a month old, whereas personally, uh, it's kind of been 10 years in the making plus. Um, so to cut a very long, boring story short, even kind of longer, um, Tom, the lead singer in the band, I met probably going back about 12 years ago, maybe. Um, and he asked me to be part of his kind of final college piece, basically. His university over here, his kind of final dis- dissertation piece. He was doing some sort of bullshit music degree where you'd, you'd get in with a skateboard and a bag of chips. Um, <laughs> and the, um, the kind of the final piece of that university course was basically to put together a band launch said band with an EP or something kind of physical or extant. Um, and that was that, you know, and, um, such was our enthusiasm that we had about 15 million copies of the EP made. Um, so even if the, the initial gig had been an absolutely unmitigated disaster, we would have had to keep going just to get shot at this bloody product, you know? Um, and the gig went well, it was literally intended as a one-off show. So we got together, we wrote a couple of songs, um, and just out of the blue, totally Steve Winwood showed up at the show. Um, it was kind of relatively local to where he lived and a friend of a friend came along. So one thing led to another, we got chatting to him after the show. He really enjoyed it and invited us along to his studio. So literally off the back of what was meant to be an entirely one-off gig, we're suddenly in Steve Winwood uh, studio, sort of messing around with the gear that he's just bought back from Madison Square Garden with Clapton. So it was it kind of snowballed very quickly. So suddenly I went from a, a kind of spotty kid to, in my own mind at the very least, a bona fide rock star. Um, so that band kind of rolled on for a year or so, I guess. And one thing led to another, the usual sort of creative differences, yada, yada, yada. We split up before we ever really had kind of chance to do anything serious. Um, at least in a recording sense. Anyway, we did a couple of festivals. We came over to the U S did a run of gate, run of dates, et cetera, et cetera. But it just left this sort of sense of unresolved, I guess, you know, on a personal level and in the sense that we had the better part of an album and a half, I guess, of material that we just never recorded. 
Um, and we've been kicking about in various bands ever since. We all re- It was relatively amicable at the time, but we've all kind of remained friends since, played in wedding bands, done the usual kind of stuff. Um, and it was just that lockdown gave us the chance to kind of actually get back in a room together and start working through this sort of decade worth of material. So, um, yeah, it's been a very long time coming, but I guess, you know, to the outside world at the very least, it sort of appeared one Friday with absolutely no prior warning. So, um, yeah, and it's like you said, it's kind of been well received, which is, which is great. You know, it's kind of, we had zero concept of whether people were going to like it or whether it was going to be a case of, oh, great, there we go. What's next? You know? Um, but yeah, it is what it is. And people seem to be listening to it, which is, which is very cool. So, um, which is very in- cool, especially in this day and age, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's interesting to see what people will actually take time and, and listen to and, and, uh, and get enthusiastic about. So tell us a little bit about what your, your kind of day to day has been during COVID. I mean, I've seen you, you've got a lot of different videos, but you're, uh, also in cahoots with some, you know, different, uh, publications, both mm. cyber and, and literal, I guess. In, uh, in cahoots. That yes. extremely nefarious. <laughs> so tell us about what, what you've been up to. Um, I mean, to be honest, the, the Friday Fretwork stuff, the YouTube thing takes up infinitely more time than I ever thought it actually would, to be honest, um, such is the way with anything sort of video related. So that takes up a lot of my week, not just in the kind of sense of having to film it and edit it. You know, I'm very much a one man band in that respect. So much as just thinking of ideas, you know, that's the that's the kind of real thing I struggle with with YouTube more than anything is just making sure I have something to talk about, something to witter on about every single bloody Friday. <laughs> that's, that's the trick, you know? And, um, someone commented the other day, it was funny. A, a YouTube comment popped up on my most recent video saying, how do you think of these ideas? And someone replied saying, Oh, there's millions of things to talk about. I was like, Oh great. If you could let me know what they are, that'd be, <laughs> that'd be amazing. Um, I'm really scraping the barrel every week. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of my week is taken up just sort of, um, I do things at a very slow pace as well. This is the downside of never having had a proper job is I've learned to kind of move at my own glacial speed. Um, so it's, yeah, it's painful to watch really for anyone involved with me. Um, but I, I get stuff done. It's usually finished by about three minutes before it needs to go live on a Friday. So (laughs) yeah, I mean the, the YouTube stuff takes a while, you know, and this obviously we've been kind of quietly beavering away with the band, um, Mm -hmm. in lockdown as well with rehearsals. And again, that was, was launched when it was launched very much in the, the hope that we were kind of on the cusp of things getting back to some sense of normality, I guess. Um, and that we could kind of back it up with live shows very soon, you know, whether that'll be the case or not, hopefully it seems like it's kind of heading in the right direction. Right. Um, more so your side of the pond than ours, to be honest, we seem a little bit slow on the uptake, but, um, yeah, the moment you, um, express any sort of reservations about anything in that regard, you sound like you should be wearing a tinfoil hat. So I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, you know, bits and bobs, really. Like you said, I'm in cahoots with a couple of different kind of brands and stuff. I've been a Yamaha artist for a few years, so they keep me busy. Right. Um, Fender in more recent years as well. So just bits and bobs, really. I don't anything to avoid getting a proper job, really. So, right. Uh, absolutely. Which I can, of course, totally relate to. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when we're talking about the end of, you know, uh, of lockdown, you know, it, it was interesting because when I, when I reached out to you, you said you have an eight month old. Oh, and yeah. And I'm and I'm interested to know, you know, because as someone who is, uh, you know, balanced, you know, my musical vocation with also trying to maintain uh, <laughs> a healthy familial situation, uh, which is 
so far it turned out all right. Uh, but I, you know, I've got four kids. My youngest now is actually uh, 17. He just got his wisdom teeth out two days ago, so he looks oh, like he, he looks like a chipmunk at this particular <laughs> juncture. Uh, but I, I'm curious as to your attitude in terms of, of of going on the road at this point in time, because you know, so many people are like, oh, I just can't wait to hit the road, and so on and so forth, and. And then there's those who have figured out that, well, wait a minute, I've been able to kind of make an interesting living on the home front here. Yeah. I'm, I want to go out and play, but only what makes sense to do instead of just this blind thing of, oh, I need to be on the road X yeah. amount of days a year in order to, in order to feel legit. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's a strange one. It's kind of recentered, I guess, a lot of people in terms of what is normal and what is a kind of day-to-day, you know, for a lot of people, I guess, that sort of existence was entirely based around the concept of being on the road and then home life was very much the kind of the afterthought almost um whereas i guess the last year has kind of flipped that on its head it's it's strange i mean i've never been too much of a road dog anyway i love touring and i get a, an immense kick out of it while i'm doing it but it is it's kind of a means to an end i guess i love playing live and it's not to denigrate that side of things at all but i love being at home just as much as i love being on the road i guess um, so the last year has been interesting. I, I've said it before, I kind of feel bad, to be honest, because so many musician friends of mine, I guess, that for whatever reason hadn't invested in the online side of things so heavily as I had in recent years. You know, And that's not to say I'd, I'd done it because I'd foreseen this great global pandemic right. coming. It was just kind of sort of circumstance, really, and, and very much serendipity. But so many musicians' friends that I know have just struggled immensely right. through the last year or so. And I feel like the kind of Bond villain that's done well when the rest of the world is burning, to be honest. Because um, it's been good. It's, you know, kind of in terms of work coming in, it's been pretty steady and, you know, overwhelming on a couple of occasions, especially towards the start, I think, when a lot of the brands that I work with kind of panicked, I guess, right. ultimately, as to kind of like, well, what the hell do we do? We've never, we've never confronted this before. Let's just kind of throw a lot at the wall and see what sticks, you know? So the, the start of the pandemic especially was just a, a little overwhelming in terms of how much work I had. It's kind of evened out to a nice level now, and it'll be interesting to see where that goes going forward, I guess. But yeah, like you said, it's been this sort of great leveler, I guess, um, of just learning to juggle the, the balance. And I mean, on a, on a personal level, like you said, I, kind of my little dude arrived last October. Um, and under normal circumstances, I would have been out in Nam in January. You know, right. And the, the concept now, the idea of being parted at such a young age for two, three weeks or whatever seems unfathomable. I hate the idea, you know, and I've, inevitably that's a part of what I do. But hopefully by the time Nam next year rolls around, things will be a little bit more settled. And, you know, my wife won't sort of be throwing um, knives at a picture at me for leaving her with a three-month-old. So, right, right. Um, yeah, it's just, it is what it is. I've enjoyed it. I'm kind of, I am itching to get back out and play live, but kind of quietly, I've kind of enjoyed the sort of the peace and quiet as well, I guess. So, Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, um, my wife and I were talking about when we were on our, our stroll and we were in a place where there wasn't that many people around, but the other day we we're out and, the, and all the cars were out back again. And you're just like, I kind of liked it when it was a ghost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, it is strange, isn't it? It's kind of, I ventured up to London probably in the middle of the kind of second lockdown over here, whenever that was. And right. it was, it was eerie. It was like kind of the walking dead or something. I've never seen London like that, you know, even in, even in old footage, you see of it back in the last century or the two centuries ago, it was busier than it was during the thing. It was a bit eerie, but kind of like you said, I kind of quite enjoyed that, but it sounds rather heartless to say it. So. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask you in regard to, you know, as you said, I too was very fortunate in that, you know, a lot of, 
a lot of aspects of what I do is based on this online thing. And yeah. again, it's not it's not uh, because I was, you know, so ahead of the curve. I just happened into these things, yeah. which, which happened to safeguard me against the pestilence <laughs> that manifested. Right. Um, but as for yourself, I mean, you're you know, you're a younger dude. Uh, what are you, 28 now? How, how old are you? 30. Oh, you're 30 now. Wrong side of 30 now, yeah. Excellent. It's downhill from here. Well, if, you know, the the 18-year-old Chris Buck, would you you have thought to yourself, I'm going to be doing this online stuff, or were you like, no, I only want to play and I only want to do this, or were you just kind of like, you know, I just love playing guitar. Whatever happens, happens. It's uh, it's a funny one. I was talking about this uh, to my wife the other day saying that, you know, the younger version of myself probably would have been slightly dismayed at the idea that that online and creating content, as it were, would be such a big part of my kind of day to day, you know, because I guess you very much grow up, you know, the the bands that I was a, a big fan of growing up, that was what I kind of idolized, you know, in terms of not only the the style of music, but the the roots that they took to get there. Mm-hmm. So it's it is very much learn instrument, write songs, get a band, practice in your garage, get signed, hit the road rock star. Right. That's, the, that's the sort of the path, you know, and anything that deviated from that to any great degree would have been seen as blasphemous, I guess. Right. Um, so it's, it's been a, a kind of a gentle sort of um, recalculation, I guess, of my path over the years and where I've gone. And I mean, the YouTube thing, I guess, was very much, you know, obviously I had an online presence prior to YouTube, but I think YouTube has sort of taken that to another level. And that was very much born out of just a frustration, I guess, in terms of I had the band and, you know, the kind of band was gigging as much as we could within the confines of everyone else having jobs, basically. Everyone else having the kind of day-to-day and the nine-to-five. So we were working around that and it was very much a case of the weekend warriors. So, you know, we would have to keep it to Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays and then everyone has to be back in work on Monday. Um, you know, which is the, I guess, the reality for a lot of people. But I was getting a little bit frustrated with just moving at other people's pace, I guess. And, you know, it was something that uh, kind of my manager years ago drilled into me from a very early point was nobody cares about your career as much as you do. Right. And I just became increasingly aware of that and increasingly frustrated by having to sort of be reliant on other people. So I was kind of thinking, well, what can I do? What have I got that can kind of, I can do on my own sort of terms, I guess. And and again, it was my wife kind of saying, well, those videos you were uploading to Instagram and to Facebook, upload them to YouTube. I was right. like, well, I don't, I don't really see them as YouTube. You know, I, I saw YouTube as more fully fledged content, not just 30 second clips or whatever. Right. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do the YouTube thing, I might as well do it. And I might as well talk to camera. And it was hideously painful to watch back initially. But just sort of, I remember the first ever episode of Friday Fretworks that I shot, I said to camera, this is going to be a weekly thing. And I had zero intention of making it a weekly thing. But I thought <laughs> if, it's, if I say that, I kind of force my hand a little bit and it has to be a weekly thing from there on. And it has turned into a weekly thing. And three years later, you know, it's kind of, it's still rolling on week to week, I guess. Like I said, struggling to find things to bloody talk about. But um <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it is what it is. And I never saw myself or I never wanted to go down the path of being an online guy or being someone who was principally known as a YouTube guy or an Instagram guy or a Facebook guy. But it's just, for me, it's just part and parcel of being a musician in 2021. Exactly. Absolutely. As much as, you know, we were talking about it with a band the other day saying that the the further on down the path I go, the the quicker I am to drop things out of my day to day that I don't enjoy so much. So teaching for me 
Some people are incredible at it. I'm bloody awful at it. I just struggle to sort of articulate what I'm trying to get across. You know, any anything that I learnt, um, and I did learn in such a haphazard sort of um, disorganised way that anything that I do know, trying to elucidate that or articulate it to anyone is a bloody nightmare. So I just I've never been any good at it. So as soon as I didn't need to teach anymore, I knocked teaching on the head, you know. And it's kind of that's the way I'm going. So the further on down the road I get, the more I can just knock stuff on the head that I don't enjoy so much. And right. if it gets to a point where I can get away with doing one Friday fretworks a month as opposed to four, great. I will do that. I think they will probably be better because of it, because you can you're not scrabbling around every Thursday trying to think, well, what the hell can I talk about this week? But <laughs> hopefully the band, you know, gets to a point where that will facilitate that. But, but in the meantime, you know, it's just a case of keep on going as going, you know? Right. So. Absolutely. So when you mentioned, you know, the bands that you were kind of uh, looking at as templates for, mm. you know, where you wanted to head when you were younger, what, what were your early influences or who did you look up to? And, and were some of those influences uh, different than your guitar influences? You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think my, my old man had a massive impact on the mis- on the music that I listened to and the music that I do still listen to. You know, this this videos of me when I'm very young singing along to Help by the Beatles. You know, because right. he's a huge Beatles nut. So I've I've grown up weirdly. I was thinking about this recently to the point where, until relatively recently, I genuinely couldn't tell you whether I was a fan of the Beatles per se, despite knowing every track inside out and every little kind of inane weird backstory behind every song. That's right. just been my that was my musical grounding was every time a Beatles song would come on, my old man would tell me, oh, McCartney wrote this when he was in so-and-so, or this was when they were with, you know, whoever. So it's taken a while to actually come to terms with, I think I like this music of my own volition. It's not just because it was <laughs> force-fed, but so, you know, my old man, the the inevitable sort of the usual suspects in that respect, you know, Clapton and Steve Winwoods was a big one growing up, sure. all these kind of usual guys. The first band that I really latched onto of my own volition was Guns N' Roses. Just, you know, I think everything about that and discovering Slash was just this sort of the, the coolest guy on the planet and wanted to, wanted to emulate every every sort of um, modicum of coolness that he had. Um, just, yeah, that was the first band that I really latched onto in a big way. And I think a large degree of that was because I discovered it myself. It wasn't something that had been passed down to me, you know, by by a relative. It was, this was, this was mine and I really latched onto that. And of course, then you you read around the subject. So I got hold of every book about Guns N' Roses I could physically get hold of, and you read about their path of doing every shitty gig on the Sunset Strip, and you know someone from Geffen happening upon them, and then suddenly they're playing bigger shows in the Sunset Strip, and then suddenly they're supporting the Stones, and then suddenly they're playing Wembley, you know, and that was very much the vision I had of what I was going to do, and to the extent where when. I was 18. I was utterly convinced that as soon as I finished school, I was moving to LA, you know, and, and yeah, needless to say that didn't happen. I'm still in South Wales, but it's, I don't think it's quite as essential as it probably was in 1987. So. Well, plus South Wales is, it's a beautiful place if we're honest. Yeah, of course you, you played here not too long ago, didn't you? I think that's correct. Yeah. We're supposed we're supposed to be back in, uh, this November, but we'll see, you know, when they awesome. first, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, fingers crossed, man. Exactly. We shall see. Cause you know, the, the thing was like, Hey, you know, uh, you might have to be in quarantine for like seven days before the tour starts. I'm like, Oh, that'll be good. I'll, yeah. uh, I'll have to stay in a hotel and pay for food and <laughs> hotel for seven days before we <laughs> go on a tour. That'll be a razor's edge, whether we'll make money. 
But be oh, that as it may, our first gig last time when we we flew in from from Germany, mm. and then Dudley picked us up at the airport uh, in London. Then we drove to Wales. It was just pouring rain. <laughs> That's uh, pretty much the usual state of affairs, to be honest. And we were these winding roads, and you know it was a little terrifying. Jet lag. We got to the gig, and everyone was nice as pie. We had a great time. And the next morning, waking up and then seeing where we were, I was like, man, this place is unbelievable. I felt Lord of the Rings ish. Yeah, well, I mean, Tolkien was heavily inspired by South Wales. There's a lot of, funnily enough, I saw a documentary on this recently, otherwise I wouldn't know, but a lot of the the language that he made up was based on Welsh. That's, you know? that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I very much take it for granted. You know, I'm the first to, to sort of be relatively self deprecating about anything, I guess, including where I'm from, but you do take it for granted and people visit and are, are blown away by the greenery and the mountains yes. and, and everything else, you know, but, um, it's just, if it's your view from your front window, I guess you're probably more likely to take it for granted. Yes, than not, so. absolutely. Well, did you so, have siblings that played music? Did your dad actually play or was he just into music? No, and I'm an only child, spoilt rotten. So, um, my old man had guitars around the house. I think he bought, <laughs> like I said, he was a big Clapton fan and he bought uh, a black US Strat, very much in the kind of vein of Blackie, right. um, not long after I was born. I think that was his sort of um, congratulations to himself for having me. Um, and it was, <laughs> and he still to this day can't play guitar. I think he bought that with the idea of, I'm going to learn to play guitar. And then very quickly came to the idea that, well, if I am going to learn to play guitar, I probably don't want to do it on such a nice guitar. I'll buy a cheaper equivalent. So the black strat hid in a case behind the sofa in our lounge, just so I couldn't get at it and destroy it. Um, and he bought, uh, what was it? It was a Korean Squire, I think, that looked, you know, kind of ostensibly identical, that sat on a guitar stand in the house. And I would bang away on it when I was a kid, you know, prior to have any sort of recollection of doing that. But I think the only, the first time I really expressed an interest in the guitar, it was because someone I knew in school expressed an interest in it. And we were best friends and sworn enemies in the way you can only be when you were sort of, you know, 12. Right. Um, and he was, he was faster than me. He was better looking. He was better in school. He was taller than me. He was kind of everything that I wanted to be, you know, and he started playing guitar. So I was like, right, I'm going to play guitar. I'm going to be better at guitar than Josh is. Um, <laughs> and he gave up within about I don't know, three months. So I kind Eat of, shit, I, Josh. <laughs> exactly. I, I won by default there. Um, but yeah, I kind of, it was never really something that occurred to me despite having a guitar around the house, you know, and despite my old man being, being into his music, it was never really something that really occurred to me until someone else did it. And I thought, right, I'll have you. Awesome. <laughs> well, you know, when I, when I, I remember I commented on a first time I um, came across one of your videos on, um, Instagram. I really, really enjoyed it. And I, and I commented something about the Sacred Steel stuff. I, you know, I, I hear Robert Randolph-ish things in your yeah, playing. You. Is, is that accurate? Is that, yeah, those? it's, I mean, again, for the kind of, I mean, you said about influences a while ago outside of the usual guitar stuff, you know, I mean, a big one for me has always been Motown right. and Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, and my grandfather was big into Nat King Cole and all that kind of, you know, Frank Sinatra. And I remember him sitting me down when I was, when I was young and saying, listen to his phrasing. This was Frank Sinatra. And uh -huh. I was like, what, what do you mean his phrasing? And he was like, the, the, the way he's singing the words. And I didn't have a clue what he was on about. And years later, I can kind of appreciate that. But, you know, I'm a big, big kind of vocalist fan, I guess. Right. So if there are kind of strange little, like you said, Robert Randolph, I guess is a good example, because you were not 
inhibited by frets if you play a slide. And right. my, my slide playing is absolutely diabolical. So if I can try and cop any of that kind of freedom or sort of inhibition that you get from being a slide player or a singer in my guitar playing, that's kind of what I'm aiming for because it was just less work than learning to play slide, um, quite frankly. But it's, I, I mean, I saw Robert Randolph supporting Eric Clapton when I was young. You know, that was a, a big turning point for me as well in terms of, I think I'd started playing guitar by this point, but didn't really have any concept of this is something that people do for a job, you know, right. very lucky. And I saw Eric Clapton with Robert Randolph supporting and that gig just blew my mind in every sense. You know, I was like, oh, this is what they do, you know, um, maybe I can do that. So, um, yeah, but going back to the kind of influences thing, a lot of vocalists, you know, like I said, from, from anyone from sort of Paul Rogers through to Sam Cooke, really. So right. um, I'm trying to, in some small way, kind of emulate that on a guitar, you know, which is sort of, it's my thing, I guess. <laughs> well, it's working. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about your your approach to to tone in terms of you know where you started out and where you kind of discovered things along the way leading to where you're at presently oh les paul into a marshall anything other than that was was black magic as far as i was concerned um for the longest time you know especially having come up through the slash school right that was that was the rig and you know anything else was sacrilege so it took me a while to kind of get out of that that kind of modus operandi i guess and to again to cut a very long story short um when i was about 16 i guess maybe i started uploading videos of myself to youtube um purely as something to do after school i think um, and out of the blue, a guy called Alan Niven stumbled across my videos, which being the Guns N' Roses devotee that I was, instantly rang a bell as their manager between 86 and 91. You know, he started off with them when they were very much a kind of a sunset strip band. And I think the last gig he did with them before Axel got shot of him was Wembley Stadium. So he was very much with them on that kind of stratospheric rise and oversaw that. And Alan has been instrumental over the years, not only in kind of managing me, I guess, in the loosest sense in that he's in the middle of the Arizona desert and I'm where I am. So it's always been very much from afar, more of a kind of Yoda mentor character, I guess, than an actual manager, just making sure I don't make the same mistakes that everyone else seems to make. Um, but that was his thing that he was trying to drill into me for a very long time was, you, you, you sound great. You sound very much like Slash, <laughs> um, which is, you know, is the ultimate compliment when I was 16. You know, I was like, oh, great. I've got it sus then. He's like, yeah, but in, in time, you won't want to sound like Slash, you know. So he was very instrumental in terms of, you know, exposing me to wider influences and making sure that I just didn't become a mini Slash. So unbeknownst to me for quite a long time, he was drip feeding videos and clips of me playing to Slash, which all culminated then back in 2012 with Slash phoning me saying, I'm playing in Birmingham, come and play with me. So I, I didn't have any concept of what he meant. I thought, well, great, I'll get up and jam at soundcheck or whatever. But he meant doing the actual gig. So I got up and played with Slash in front of about 14,000 people or something. And in hindsight, Alan was very much waiting for the moment of he's his own guy. He's not just going to get up on stage with Slash and try and out Slash Slash. Right, right, yes, right, right. A one-way ticket to sort of hell and back. Um, and a big part of that for me, of that kind of idea of finding my own voice, which I think is a, a continual evolution. You know, that's something that only ever sort of will continue to grow was picking up a Strat, you know, right. was stepping out of that idea of anything other than the Les Paul doesn't really work. Um, so I remember plugging in a Strat for the first time and dialing the gain back on the Marshall and thinking, oh, they sound pretty cool, clean. 
um, and then getting into the idea of pedals with different stages of gain and then fast forward 10 years and I'm still trying to buy pedals to, to bypass the idea of practice. So, <laughs> um, it's just a continual, uh, continual evolution and a continual sort of purchasing plan really. So, um, yeah, it's, it's this ongoing thing, I guess. And you know, if, if anyone was kind enough to say that I sound a little bit like me, I guess, you know, inevitably there are, there are influences flying about left, right, and center. And I'm my own harshest critic. When I play, I just hear my influences. Right. I can kind of pinpoint moments and go, that's so-and-so, that's Slash, that's Clapton, that's BB King or whatever. Um, but I guess if you amalgamate enough influences, then some point along the way, you probably start to sound a little bit like yourself, which, right. is, which is the plan ultimately, I guess. I'll it, get it's always the plan. <laughs> you know, not for everyone though. I mean, there are there are plenty of folks that you know all they want to do is uh, sound like this person or that person, yeah. and and that's fine. You know what I mean? It's like whatever whatever trips your trigger. And you know, but of course, for me, it was always the same type of a, a thing. It, it was about amalgamating, cherry picking, if you will, all the coolest little things I heard from folk. Yeah, uh, and put it in the stew to hopefully kind of rearrange those things or mutate them in a certain way to come up with your own yeah uh, I mean, savory sangria, if you will. <laughs> I mean, different moments in time sort of kickstart different movements as well. I mean, the the idea of the strat and the hat thing was was huge for a while, wasn't it? Right. Off the back off the back of Stevie Ray, and then suddenly for a period. Everyone had a, you know, kind of twin and a, and a tube screamer or a strat and was going for right. that kind of Texas thing, you know, and it's, it's just for me, I guess, as soon as I got my idea, I got my head around the idea of it's not necessarily the coolest thing to sound exactly like your heroes. Right. At every moment I felt like I'm turning into a pastiche of an influence of mine. I'll kind of try and take a right turn to sort of get away from that, I guess. But like you said, not every, it's not for everyone. Some people just are content sounding like someone else, you know, but right. for me, it's always been a case of trying to find what do I sound like, you know, and right. is that, is that something people would want to listen to? And no, is clearly the answer. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you talk about Marshalls, are you talking like the old JCM 800s? What were the kind of oh, Marshalls? Yeah. yeah. I, I had a, <laughs> see, I bought a TSL 100, because it was the closest thing I could get hold of locally to a JCM 800. Um, and I was kind of, I was satisfied with that for a while. You know, it kind of did the Marshall thing to a degree and then it went pop. So it went back to Marshall and came back sounding absolutely awful. Um, by which point I was a little bit older, had a little bit more of a idea of, well, I, I don't really need two four by 12 sat on top of one another to play in the dog and duck down the road. You the know? dog and duck. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I set off in search of something a little bit smaller and a little bit closer to what I initially wanted, which was the JCM 800. And I found, found a two by 12 hundred watt combo, um, for sale in a kind of secondhand guitar shop, not too far from me, um, for a decent price, bought it. It's the heaviest thing you've ever touched in your life. It's filled with concrete, I think. Um, but it just sounded and still sounds absolutely glorious. It's just that sound, you know, that's the sound I grew up listening to. Um, so yeah, JCM 800 was a big one, you know, and then, like I said, I, when I got into the Strat thing, it was very much a case of dialing the gain back on that. And I mean, with the, with the exception of the old ones, the Plexis, nobody's ever bought a Marshall for a clean tone. Right. So I then took a little bit of a kind of different turn from that, I guess, and went into the Fender kind of realm. So um, yeah, it's this constant thing, but I'm I'm a big Marshall fan, you know. 
played I played a JTM forty five recently, an original. Oh, nice. Um, that was a head. Not I've kind of again had this idea that someday we'll get a JTM forty five combo because it's the blues breaker amp. And right. the, the, the Beano record was a really big one for me growing up. You know, I think stepping out is probably still one of the finest examples of blues playing ever recorded it's right. just intense um so i've had this idea for a very long time that at some point i will own a 2x12 jtm 45 like clapton used on those sessions and this head recently into a 4x12 was the first chance i'd ever had to actually plug one in and it was every bit as good as i'd hoped which was thoroughly dispiriting when you saw the price tag so. <laughs> We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, they've gotten they've gotten to be a bit ridiculous. It is it, it's always amazing to me. I mean, I'm sure you know it has been talked about a million times, and 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 I am a you know a Clapton fan, and certainly he still plays great and he sings great. He's got a you know unbelievable selection of tunes. You know that's beyond refute. But the playing that he did back in those days uh, was obviously a different thing. He had an entirely different intention. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, it's I think it's that intensity. That's something I've kind of been conscious of, I guess, over the years is, I remember I watched an interview with Clapton where he kind of has said as much in that he thinks that he was a better guitar player when he was younger. And I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think the the experience and the wisdom and the the pace and everything else that you develop as you get older makes you a, a better player. But there is undoubtedly something to be said for the intensity and the the fire and the aggression of 23-year-old Clapton right? You know, versus 67-year-old Clapton. But if they sounded the same, if he was still the same player today that he was when he was 23, I think something probably would have gone wrong along the way, you know? Right. Um, and But you couldn't see Bluesbreaker Clapton playing Lay Down Sally. Because <laughs> right. it was, right. you know, that, that development happened somewhere along the way. But I've been very conscious of that, that I think as much as you develop and you grow and you um, sort of evolve as a player, I wouldn't want to lose that intensity and that sort of fire that you have when you're younger, I guess. Right. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I like to listen to, you know, old bootlegs, it's, you know, especially with mm. the advent of, of YouTube, there's so many things that are, uh, that have been uploaded in, you know, in varying horrible quality. But, you know, I was one of these guys, you know, back in the days, my records looked like someone ate off them. I didn't care because I was always, you know, what was that yeah, again? Yeah, you know? yeah. So I didn't really care about the noise. So when I listen to a bootleg and it's like, you know, sounds like it's in a box yeah, a million yeah, yeah. miles away, I'm like, I could still hear what I want to hear yeah. on it. So all the better for it. Yeah. Exactly. So I listened to a lot of cream, you know, old bootlegs and stuff like that. And, you know, and there was a, a certain, aspects of like you know in early 68 when they were touring most of the, a lot of the stuff that's on uh, live cream uh volume two like his version of stepping yeah. out on there that's like almost the yeah, whole yeah. side of the record uh you know it's just I, you know, I guess the difference for me about it is and in and, and again it's not to say oh it was better than or it was it, it's just in terms of intention it seems like you know, everyone has an evolution of, of the way that you play and so on and so forth, but it seems like he was still on the search then. That that yeah. Clapton back then could have, you know, evolved with a little extra harmonic knowledge and been like, an, I mean, imagine, and that's one of the things I always tried to do when I, when I was developing my style. Like, what would that 
articulation and vibrato and tone and just that approach sound like with just a little bit more harmonic knowledge. <laughs> not, yeah, that, yeah. not that that's the end, of, but you know what I mean? Just kind of pu- oh, keep, keep pushing the envelope. And, and you could still hear that through like uh, live Derek and the Dominoes, you know, yeah, it's, it's like yeah. he's still pushing. It's like the way that he's playing. It's it's more in, it's more of a. You know, not to say a jazz approach, but only a jazz approach in the fact that he's feeding off what he just played to to reach for stuff that's never yeah. been done before. And then at one point, it's as if a light went off and said, "This is what you do. You yeah. will only do this." And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and the other yeah. thing too that's very interesting to me, uh, as long as we're geeking out and kind of the, the clap, at least I'm geeking out on the clap yeah, thing, yeah. is that I, it's almost as if he had a conversation with his drummers at one point that said, "Don't push me. Don't respond off the stuff that I'm doing." You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Stay there because Don't that move. that leads you to go off. You know, and it's like no matter what, the drummer's doing this and he's doing yeah. his thing, and and his playing now to me, it's like you know he plays and it's still great. I'm not going to say it's not, but it's like he's going, "I'm Eric Clapton. I'm Eric Clapton. I'm Eric Clapton." Whereas before yeah. he was saying all kinds of shit he's never said before. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's funny. There was um, there was a clip I watched on YouTube recently of a version of Old Love. I think it was from Madison Square Garden, a good couple of years ago, probably five or six years ago. Uh, Steve Gadd is on drums, right. um, who's obviously uh, right. kind of one of my favorite drummers of all time. Absolutely. And it comes off the back of the solo, and the solo has sort of been building in intensity and building in intensity, and then it comes right back down. And Clapton starts pushing. You can, there's an obvious point where he's kind of pushing ahead of the beat. And it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Gad at that point, just to not speed up necessarily, but just follow him a little bit. And it's just not happening. He's like this immovable thing behind him of like, nope, not moving. Just right. to, just to the point where it gets obvious that Clapton is fairly ahead of the beat. And it kind of there's a moment where he sort of checks himself and kind of steps back in line. And uh, I, I know what you mean. Like you said, it's, I mean, Cream, I guess, was was very much of its time and that sort of musical freedom. And I mean, there, as much as I love cream, there are moments where it's nigh on unlistenable. It's all, everyone is going hell for leather. You know, the three of them are Jack Bruce is playing stuff underneath Clapton solos. And it's like, I can't, I can't figure out who I'm listening to because he's, he's ventured into a territory and an octave that he probably shouldn't be in with four strings. Um, so I think there's a lot of that cream stuff, which is so intense and so fiery and so sort of, um, just manic, I guess, ultimately. It's, It's kind of something you probably grow out of in time, but um, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And like you said, it's, it's I, there's a lot of records where he found, it seems like he was finding his feet. And for me, I think it's one of the reasons that so many of my favorite records are live records. Right. Is there is that sense of, like you said, reaching, kind of feeling where they're going. And if you're having a great night, you know, every guitar player knows your, your favorite nights are the ones where you kind of feel like you can do anything. You just something has clicked, you know, whether it was what you had for breakfast or whatever the, the stars have aligned and you feel like you're kind of invincible and, and anything you reach for, you reach um, or you find. And there's a lot of records for me, you know, like you said, even kind of Derek and the Domino stuff where he's kind of really kind of finding his feet, but doing it in a very musical way. But right. it's, yeah, it's, it's strange, I guess. Like you said, he kind of reached the point where it was almost, it wasn't a gradual come down off the sort of the, the intention and the intensity of the stuff that came before so much as a kind of, right, we've cut and now we're going to play kind of, um, what was the acoustic stuff he did off the back, you know, Bonnie, uh, Delaney and Bonnie or whatever it was, right. you know, it was such a left turn. Um, but you know, that early Clapton stuff just sounds like he was, which was a, an angry young man, I guess. Right. You know? Filled with rage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Angry, angry hormones. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that one of the records when I, 
when I first started playing guitar, uh, you know, I grew up with, you know, my older brother kind of influencing my musical tastes. Uh, he was 15, 14 years older than I am. Still is 14 years old only. And, uh, and, then we had, and there were five girls in between. So I roomed with my brother, probably much to his chagrin. But I, had, I yeah. listened to everything he listened to. So it was, you know, Cream and Hendrix and so on and so forth. So when I wanted to actually start playing guitar, that was the stuff I was, re- I was really geeked out about music at a very young age. I did a report on Jimi Hendrix when I was in third grade. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just, I, would, I would read all these books and know all the, you know, all the stuff, kind of like what you were talking about with, you know, uh, Guns N' yeah, Roses, yeah. similar yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. right? So I wanted to start playing guitar, and Clapton, you know, and we were, as, as a Clapton fan, as a Cream fan, you know, the whole time in the 70s, you're listening to Lay Down Sale. And Cocaine comes out, the, the studio yeah. version, you're like, well, it sounds like he's maybe rocking out a little bit again. Yeah. Maybe he'll do some of that old stuff again. And then he came out with a record called Just One Night, which was a live record. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that one. It's with yeah, L- yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is I still love that record. And it's, it's, he has a tone on that record that he really hadn't had before or after. And it's, yeah. it's, it's like there's a little bit of delay, maybe a little bit of phaser on there or something. But uh, I love that freaking record. I mean, he played in a different way. It was like one of those things where, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this. Sometimes, you know, it's, you know, get to be, you know, my age, I got all this freaking stuff stockpiled and I, of when I've played here, there, and the next place, and somebody will come along, and and they'll give you recordings, and you're listening back, like I had no idea I played that. What was I thinking? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then you're like, well, I like that, and at the time yeah. you remember thinking, well, that's shit. You know what I mean? And then you listen back, <laughs> and then by the same token, stuff you thought was really happening isn't. So isn't. Yeah, absolutely. But it's amazing. Oh. It's like you know, Clapton comes out with that record, and you listen to it, and you're like. And you listen to his career since then. It's like, for whatever reason, that's like a cool little snapshot of maybe something that happened those three nights or whatever with that particular lineup. It's yeah. like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's just record it like that. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's and then just, ne- never happened again. Never happened again. Yeah. it's. I mean, the, the big one for me in terms of live records for Clapton was um, oh, 21 Tw- Nights. 24 Nights. Yeah, that's a, nights, I know, love that one, too. Home. I do love and, that one. It's so funny that, you know, for years I was very much in search. I mean, it's playing on Have You Ever Loved a Woman and Old Love and even the Edge of Darkness theme tune. Yes, that's uh, fantastic. With Michael Kamen. You know, that was was what I was aspiring to for a very long time, not only in terms of the playing, but the tone. And I kind of, I couldn't really figure out what it was. I knew it was kind of going through a bit of a Soldano thing. And then, funnily enough, a couple of years ago, I bought a Clapton Strat that was very much in a state of disrepair. It was um, bizarrely; it had a it had a squire, I think, a squire body on it that someone had obviously routed themselves um, with a dessert spoon, I think, um, <laughs> because it was absolutely horrific. And uh, you could get away with it underneath the pickguard and the back cover, but as soon as he took it off, it was just absolutely horrendous. And obviously, it used the body for something else, but the neck and the electronics were all original, but it was just diabolically routed. So I thought, right, at some point, I will get a Clapton body, and this will be complete again. And I finally got around to that earlier this year, had someone put it together who knows what they're doing, because the circuitry in that is fairly intense. Right. Um, had someone put it together, set it up. And the moment I plugged it in, it was like, it doesn't matter what amp you plug it into. As soon as you turn that mid boost circuit up, it's like, that's 24 nights. Right. That's the tone. And it was just kind of this years of sort of, um, quietly searching for that sound, you know, sort of completed in the space of 10 minutes. Right. Um, but yeah, I think, like you said, I think the seventies obviously had his, he had his issues. He had his demons. He disappeared off the face of the planet for a very long time. Right. You know? Um, and the stuff that was released around that time, you very much got the sense of 
someone's coercing him into releasing material. You know, he's probably not in a fit state to release this sort of stuff. Um, but obviously came back with a vengeance and, and very well dressed as he was in the 90s. Yes, he was um, quite the, the dapper soul. He was, yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's funny. I mean, John Mayer's latest record is clearly, uh, he's been listening to a lot of August and a lot of Journeyman. And right. Exactly. A lot of that kind of stuff, you know. Um, so it um, seems to be coming around back into fashion, if not the Armani suits. Right. And the polo I, necks. But, you know, uh, I, I, too, I, I, I've got a weakness for those Clapton strats. And I've had a few of them over the years, and then I don't have them anymore, and then I want another one. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for me, it was, and again, and not to geek out too bad, but, you know, there's something about the lace sensors with that Clapton circuit yeah, that, has the, that has the sound. You know what I mean? It's, I love them. When they're gained up, they're incredible sounding things. It is that Clapton sound. But by the same token, that clean break in the middle of something like Bad Love before yes. it goes into that epic end solo, that, for whatever reason, I love the play and I love the riff. I love the track. It's incredible. But that tone is just kind of like nails down a chalkboard. I just really don't like it. <laughs> but it is it is the sound of clean lay sensors. That's what they sound like. Right, it's exactly. Just, it's a tone unto itself, you know? And obviously, in more recent years, the, the Clapton Strat then moved over to using noiseless pickups, which right. he then kind of followed suit. But I think there is there is definitely a uniqueness to those lay sensors. So yes. when... Uh, Annoyingly, one of them died in the um, in the Clapton Strat I had. So I was initially toying with the idea of just getting a set of noiseless, as would be in it today. But I thought, well, it's a 91 neck and it's a 93 body I bought. I need to get lay sensors for this. So I bought a set of lay sensors and it's, it is that sound, for better or for worse. Now, with, with, with guitars, are you real sensitive to... Um... You know, it, it, for me, it's like I have to play so many different guitars over the years that I just kind yeah. of adapt to oh, what they are. Cool. So, but if, if you played like um, you know uh, a seven and a quarter inch radius versus a nine point five or any of that kind of stuff, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, obviously you have preferences, but you're okay with with any of those if need oh, be, right? As long as long as it's got six strings, I'm happy to be honest. Right, uh, exactly. And it makes the noise. It's uh, again, I think it's. Not a weakness that would probably be slightly harsh, I guess, but it's a sort of um, it's a slight flaw in people that do get so bogged down in the idea of well, it has to be this exact specifications in order for it to work for me, and it's like well, part parcel of being being a good musician or being a good guitar player, I guess, is being equally comfortable with with a Rickenbacker right. as it is, you know, with a, an SG or something. I don't know. Right. Um, like I did a funny enough, I did a video recently on Rickenbackers because the whole. The whole Rickenbacker thing just intrigues me no end because you've got the the biggest band in every sense of all time pretty much exclusively use Rickenbacker for a very long time, at least with John and George. Right. You know, and then even even Paul followed suit with the, the 4001 or whatever it was for a lot of the later Beatles stuff. You've got the biggest band of all time. Why is Rickenbacker not a household name like Gibson or Fender? Um, so I did a bit of a deep dive into that and got hold of a couple of Rickenbackers, got hold of three... 360 and a 330. Um, I can't remember what the one John Lennon plays is now, the kind of shorter scale three-quarter thing. Right. Um, and it's, you know, that is a bit of a challenge playing that. And you get the sense suddenly that they've very much informed his John style of playing in particular, this short scale, you know, the kind of chords are very close together. Playing something like those fast triplets in All My Loving, doing that on what is ostensibly a three-quarter size guitar right. is no, no mean feat, you know? So... Learning to do that for that video was just a, a total education in, you know, that kind of style of play in a moment in time, I guess, and a, a style of music that seems to have um, kind of, you know, we've left behind at some point. But yeah, I, I'm not picky in the slightest. If it makes a noise and it's got six strings and they're in tune, I'm good to go. 
Um, but like you said, you have your preferences, but it's very much a case of just learning to adapt. Right on. Have you seen that that old footage of that uh, old show from Houston, Texas, back in the the '60s, where Car- uh, Clarence Gatemouth Brown is like the band director, and he's he's yeah, using yeah. an old that three pickup Rickenbacker? <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Oh man, they're they're cool guitars. They're I hate the word because it's kind of the the millennial word, but vibey. They vibey. Are vibey. <laughs> Vibe, uh, as I like yeah, to say. Yeah, Vibe, yeah. I'm get a, uh, <laughs> love to get a 12 string at some point, but I'll just disappear into playing birds riffs. There you go. So, yeah, but now it, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a guitar lurking over my shoulder there in the background. Um, is a 62 Strat that I happened upon um, uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess. Um, and I had, prior to buying it, I had zero sort of intention or kind of, I don't know, I'd never wanted a pre-CBS Strat. You know, I've played a couple of old Les Pauls, which I would happily try and sell my house for. Right. Um, but I'd never played an old Strat, which weirdly, I guess, as a Strat guy primarily, I'd never played any old Strats, which kind of had me going weak at the knees. And then this one popped up for sale at a house clearance um, at an auction house near me, which was not a specialist uh, guitar auction. He is by any stretch of the imagination. The the item before this guitar was a set of shower curtains, ah. um, which sold for about three pounds. And then this guitar came up and I'd seen it online. Someone had alerted me of the fact that it was there. So I went across and had a look at it and very quickly got a sense that it was, it was fairly old, you know. Um, and I picked it up for, you know, I think it was about 1800 pounds in the end, which, you know, considering what it is and it's right. history, you know, is, is a pretty good steal. I did a bit of work on it then or got someone who knew what they were doing to do a bit of work on it. And that's been a bit of an education in the idea of a seven and a quarter board. Right. I've not had a massive amount of experience with that. And I generally use on strats, you know, 10, 10 and a half. So whatever the latest thing is, you know, right. um, and then 11s on everything else. And straight away went to 11, uh, 10 and a half on this strat. I was like, oh, right. Okay. I think I might need to step this back a bit. It was just a little bit of a fight. So the, the seven and a quarter thing took me, took me off guard a little bit as being something I might need to actually put a little bit more effort into getting my head around. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting there slowly. It's just, I think I'm so ingrained in, you know, kind of, if not nine and a half Gibson radius. Right. So, I hear you. It's, uh, yeah. An education. Well, it's interesting. Cause I had, um, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I played a 68 Strat or 68 Tele, excuse me, was my, my mm. main guitar for, you know, most of my high school, uh, experience. And then, um, I switched over to, uh, 335 at some point when I was yeah. like a senior high school, so on and so forth. But I grew up playing on that, on those little frats, yeah. uh, in that, in, in that seven and a quarter inch radius. And I, it's weird. You get in your head like, well, maybe I, you know, I'm so used to like nine and a half and 10 inch radius and all those wildwood tens that I play, uh, from the Fender mm. custom shop, that's 10 inch radius. And you know, in the medium jumbo frets and all that kind of sweet stuff. But I, I notice that there's definitely a different way that I play. As soon as I'm on that old radius, you know, certain yeah. vibratos are easier and certain yeah. ways that I address things and the sound is different. So you're, you, you, you just kind of, you know, it, it, uh, pivot. Informs how you play. Ex- yeah, exactly. So uh, as you probably saw online, I, I bought the 74 Strat the other day and I, it, and it's kind of funny because I, you know, I had a 63 strap for a while and I, and I got rid of it probably 10 years ago. Um, cause I just wasn't playing it all that much. And, mm-hmm. and to be honest, I cracked the headstock on it and it was, it was kind of, <laughs> I did, you know, the, the thing was a mess, bless it. But, um, I, I ended up getting a 53 telly about five years ago. They harvested, yeah, so, yeah. I, I harvested a kidney to get that, but, um, I sold a <laughs> bunch of other stuff to get that, but 
with the Strat, it was one of those things where I, you know, I was kind of saw it out of the corner of my eye, and I saw that big headstock. And you know, growing up as I did in, in the in the '70s, when those were the only Strats that you saw with any regularity, yeah. and plus that was the, the headstock that Hendrix had. You know what I mean? And that yeah. and, and Richie Blackmore and Robin the, Robin Trower. That's the, save, that's the saving grace of the big headstock is Hendrix and Blackmore. Exactly. <laughs> Other, other, apart from that, it's not got a great sort of um, and Trower, I guess. Like I said, it's it's not got the sort of um, the reputation of the smaller headstock, is it? But there's there's a lot of good music made on uh, on post CBS strats. Exactly, and I was so amazed when I grabbed that guitar and it, first of all, I couldn't believe how light it was. It's like seven and it's like seven and a half pounds at, at oh, most, cool. right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then I plugged it in. And it sounded amazing. Still got the three way toggle switch in it, you know, which, oh, cool, which I yeah. dig. Uh, but yeah, it was just amazing how you know you just all of a sudden you're like, well, this is the neck I grew up on. I totally dig that. Mm. It, it's so it's, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's an amazing thing. Guitars. It's, it's like, it never ends. <laughs> it's amazing. How, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you could, if you could explain that to my wife as well, slightly <laughs> more uh, sympathetic. It's funny. We, we were talking the other day and I think the one guitar on my bucket list, um, you know, very much at the top of it is a, a 54, 53, 54, maybe early 55 gold top. Right. Um, just, you know, even if I was in a position, you know, not that I ever will be likely to be, if I was ever in a position to buy a burst, I don't think I would. I think the concept of owning one would absolutely terrify me. Right. You know, what What the hell would you do with it, you know? And um, an online Instagram friend of mine, Richard Fortas, who's the the other guitar player in Guns N' Roses, right. has recently sold a hell of a lot of stuff, pretty much everything he owns. I yeah, think. Chicago Music Exchange. I <laughs> yeah, saw that. Yeah, yeah. Chicago Music Exchange to get the bursts, you know? And I love the idea of that, of Sunday maybe partnering with everything to, to get this one sort of bucket list guitar. But... If I had a burst, you know, I've been lucky to play quite a lot of bursts over the years, and you know, a lot of them have been absolutely incredible guitars. But I think anything that commands that level of price these days would just scare the bejeebus out of me. Of you know, even taking it outside, even having it inside the house would scare me. Right. Um, so a gold top, you know, which comparatively speaking is a little bit more achievable. Absolutely, especially um, if you get like a refin one or something. I- absolutely, and you know, I'm not precious about that stuff. I think you know, I would be buying it very much with the intention of using it, gigging right. it, and taking it out and giving it some love. So I think if someone else has done the, done the kind of damage to it over the years and it's been refinned or it's maybe a headstock repair or whatever, that'll take the pressure out of it. Right. Um, so uh, that's very much on the bucket list at some point, but there's a bit of convincing to be done in-house before that. So I understand. Now, I noticed that that, uh, that Yamaha guitar you play quite a bit has P90s mm-hmm. on it. So talk a little bit about your... Because I'm obviously need even P90s now. I got the new P90s with Fishman, and I've got them yeah, on yeah, a yeah. couple of different instruments. So, w- what attracted you to P90s, and what what about them does it for you? Honestly, why you can why those kind of early PAFs command the price they do, and then comparatively, you can pick up pick up a set of early P90s for for next to nothing is will be of eternal bafflement to me because they are, without a shadow of a doubt, I think the best pickups ever made. You know, and I, I say that as a dyed in the wool strat guy, you know. Mm. But P nineties just do absolutely everything. And uh it's just I don't know, I think like I said, having been a dyed in the wool strat guy for a very long time and kind of fought to get certain things out of a strat or certain tones out of a strat and kind of fallen short in some respects and then thought, well, let's maybe go back to humbuckers for that song and then feeling like that was maybe a little bit too much. It's the ultimate cliche, I guess, but they are that perfect halfway house. They you know, they, they are single coils, but they sound somewhere like between a strat and a humbucker. You know? Right. Um, it's just everything about a good set of P90s. A set of low-wind P90s, I think, is my favorite guitar tone i think and 
you know, that was very much something I wanted to get with that Yamaha. Um, so hopefully that will be a signature model at some point, And that's very much going to be the specs of that will be a Raptail and, and two P90s. You know, I think it's just, I think there's a lot to be said for the simplicity of a, just a three-way toggle, like you said on the Strat. Right. That you have this, there's a lot to be said for simplicity. I think people are very quick to complicate things and I'm as guilty as that of anyone else. You know, I will happily buy pedals and amps until I'm blue in the face, but it's just, you have everything you need with those, with a, with a tone control and a volume control, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah, the, P, more, the P90, P90s, they do sound magnificent. I mean, there's just yeah. so much, there's so much character to them. I mean, and, and your point is well taken about the PAFs. PAFs sound great, but when you play a, you know, if you have the opportunity to go back and forth between an old Les Paul with P90s and then yeah. one with the um, the PAFs, there's just so much more information going on sonically. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and of, course, of course, the only problem is over the years has been, you know, having P90s and they sound so great, because, but maybe because of that bigger coil or whatever, when you add a little heat, you know, you add a little yeah. overdrive or something, man, they can get noisy in a hurry, which of yeah, course, oh yeah, absolutely. which is uh, something that we've successfully been able to uh, squelch. To eradicate. Yes. I, I honestly, like you said, I think having played quite a lot of old sets of PAFs and stuff, I very much get the impression that they were shooting for that PAF tone. Um, or shooting for that P90 right. tone. Sorry, with the PAFs. You know, there, are, there are so many similarities, you know, in the way they capture the information that's flying around in the guitar, you know, and that seems to be something that is very consistent with those old Les Pauls, is there's so much harmonic information flying around. Right. You know, whether it, whether it's because the wood has dried out in the last however many years, or whether it was because relatively old wood when the guitar was made, I guess, whatever the reason, there just seems to be so much more harmonic information in those guitars, and those Absolutely. pickups just capture it beautifully. So. Yeah, and those old PAFs, they were not hot. I mean, those were like underwound, no. scatterwound, whatever you want to call them, they, but they're like, uh, I always like to say that those old bursts are like meaty sounding Telecasters. <laughs> yeah, oh, massively. I, the, the Telecaster on steroids is the sort of, and again, unless, you know, it's it's a sort of relatively sort of small club, I guess, isn't it, for those of us that have been lucky to happen across these old bursts stuff, you know, but that is one thing which is consistently said about them is they sound like fat Telecasters. Yeah. That's what, and it makes entire sense then to see that Jimmy Page transitioned over right. after Led Zeppelin one, you know, it's kind of like, it's just a fatter sounding Telecaster, you know? Absolutely. But, uh, and that was really the case with, you know, um, you know, Bloomfield, you know, Bloomfield went from yeah, the telly absolutely. to the, the P90 Les Paul. And then, you know, he was over in England and saw, um, saw Clapton playing with mail and saw, and like, Hey, those home yeah. markers, you know, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, of course, you know, Clapton in the Yardbirds was playing a Telecaster if I recall yeah, correctly. So yeah, it's not a, and, and then Jeff Beck, obviously going from the Esquire or the telly through to the Les Paul, it makes, it totally makes, totally makes sense. Oh, Absolutely. No, it's, uh, yeah, good Telecaster is on the radar at some point as well, but I'm slightly less clued up about Telecasters than I am Strats and Les Paul, so I think I'd do a bit of digging. I'd love an old Blackguard. Like, your 53 is just absolutely incredible. Oh, um, I love it. It's, it's a beast. So how, how, did you, how did you come across that? And which, like I said, which kidney did you have to part with? Well, what was interesting about it is, is that um, I was out at Wildwood, and I was, you know, usually before COVID hit, I'd be out there every yeah. every month for about four days. And uh, some guy passed away, unfortunately, and his brother was in charge of his estate. And he was one of these guys that collected all kinds of stuff. You know, he had like car collection and this collection, but he had a music collection. And one of the things he had, well, two of the guitars he had, he had a 54 Strat and he had this 53 Telecaster. And 
And I remember it, you know, I when I first came in, I looked at it, I was like, oh my God, I want it. Because it's it's a spray over. So it's it's it hasn't okay, been refinned, yeah. but it's it's and it, you can barely even tell, right? Yeah. And then there's like a hole underneath the pit guard someplace where, you know, but I don't give a shit, right? And <laughs> and it's been, you know, refretted at some point, but it's the original pickups and the whole nine yards, and it weighs nothing. Yeah, but I remember I got, and I started playing it, and I was messing around one day at the store, and and, um, and it had the smaller frets on it, and I thought, you know what, maybe, you know, maybe the vintage thing isn't my thing anymore. Maybe I, you know, I'll just use a custom shop with the, you know, with the flatter radius and the bigger frets. <laughs> and then I came home, and I remember this this buddy of mine. This is kind of a funny story. He's he's actually. <laughs> I call him the cat whisperer. He's this guy who's, who, uh, uh, my old drummer used to live with this guy back and they were, you know, they were young guys. They shared this house and we used to rehearse in the basement at this guy's house. He was a school teacher yeah. at the time. And then he retired from school teaching and he started to breed Bengal cats <laughs> of which we've purchased two Bengal cats from him, right? So anyway, so then he started, he makes so much money from these cats that he mm. just, he's now a guy that collects all kinds of stuff. So he's collected a bunch of different guitars, and he had this 50, uh, which I just had at the house for a while. He took it back a couple of days ago, but um, I had his 58 Strat over here. <laughs> so prior to me getting this Telecaster, Jim calls me up. He's like, hey, you want to check out this Strat? You know, I bought it. I don't really play it. I got it insured for a bunch of money. Just take it and, and play it for a while for the hell of it. I'm like, mm. okay. So yeah, if I must. <laughs> exactly. So I had this guitar, and it's like immaculate, but it had the smaller frets, and it had the old school radius, and I did gigs on it. I was like, "Oh, this totally works." So as soon as yeah, I yeah. realized, it, look, it's not—you just pivot, right? As we said, you just play to the instrument. Yeah. So then the next time I was out at Wildwood, uh, I started playing that guitar. I was like, "Yeah, I need, I need to get this." And uh, yeah. and it was simultaneously around the time that I had, a, I got a horrible tax bill. <laughs> it was one of those <laughs> things where I started to make a little bit more money, and it's like I had to pay in all this dough. I was like, man, if I had just bought that Telecaster, maybe I wouldn't have had to have paid so much in. So it was one of those things where I decided to get the guitar, and I ended up liquidating a bunch of, um, you know, I had some Gibson Custom Shop guitars that were, mm. you know, pretty expensive and some other things. So I liquidated a few things, put some money aside, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Ended up getting the guitar, and it was a good thing too because now that thing probably is appreciated uh, substantially. Oh, oh, it's gone mad. I mean, even during COVID times, you know, the kind of the price of vintage stuff has started climbing again, hasn't it? You know, Absolutely, it's, it's insane. It's stuff is harder to get hold of, you know. Well, don't, um, don't you find it funny from the, the point of view like right before COVID, it's like you were hearing all these people go, "Is this the death of guitar? Is the guitar <laughs> over with?" You know, you know, and all this, Clapton says, "Maybe the time of the guitar is gone," and all of a sudden, they literally can't make enough of the damn things. It's uh, it's got. I think Fender sold more guitars last year than any other year in their history, didn't they? Exactly. It's gone saying this. I mean, the, the take-home message I've taken from that is maybe I should start breeding cats, though. <laughs> I didn't realize there was so much money to be made in cats. It's true, because I said to him, I was over at his house because, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to borrow that guitar again. And I said, because he said, hey, anytime you want. And the only reason why I gave it back initially was because the input jack was getting a little wonky and I didn't want to be responsible for, you know, I thought if he wants to keep it all correct, I better let him get it repaired. So we did. And, yeah. and I started thinking in the back of my mind because he started to collect 335s. And he's like, if you ever want to borrow okay. one of these. So I decided, I was like, hey, Jim, you mind if I borrow on a guitar? He's like, yeah, absolutely. Come on over. So I had the Strat. And then he has like all these 335s. He's like got the 335 bug. So he's got, you know, yeah. he's got a 58, 59, 60, 61, 63. 
Right. And I was like, for the love of God, Jim, what are you doing? He's like, it's these damn cats. It's like printing money. <laughs> and, and then he, then he talked, he, he talked about this other buddy of his who is, um, who was, uh, like breeds those labradoodles or whatever. Right. And apparently during COVID, the guy made like an astronomical sum of money because everyone wanted, like they wanted guitars. They wanted pets during COVID hours. <laughs> I mean, when you think global pandemic, you, you do think labradoodles. Right. right? Uh, it's like, it's what's going to, what's going to be this correlation? <laughs> Oh, man. So yeah, I, actually, my son said the same thing. He's like, "Man, screw this drum thing. I'm, I'm going to start. I'm going to start breeding dogs and cats. Start collecting animals." <laughs> oh, man. It's funny. I, the the three three five thing um, kind of passed me by for a long time, and then Tom Bugovac has a lot to answer for. I think, um, especially over COVID, for sort of. Um, yeah, a lot of guitar purchases, uh, myself included, because that I think it's a fifty-eight, maybe because it's the it hasn't got the binding the right. one that he plays. So I think that was a very early kind of quirk of those fifty-eights. Um, yeah, set me on a path to try and find a, a good Sunburst three three five, and I just nothing came up that really kind of piqued my interest, especially nothing for the right price, you know. And trawling through eBay and Reverb, there were a lot of stuff that was just hideously overpriced. Right. And um, someone suggested saying. Look at those old Orvilles. I was like, "What? What the hell is an Orville?" Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they as and are, are they as cool as they sound with a name like Orville? Um, so obviously it was those imports, um, Gibsons, the Japanese-made ones, right. during the sort of late eighties and nineties, I guess. And uh, bizarrely, there was a guy from my neck of the woods who relocated to France a couple of years ago who specialises in importing Japanese guitars, and they're selling them from France. And I found a kind of a vaguely sort of fifty-nine spec Sunburst three three five bought that and it's absolutely phenomenal so that's again then has sent me on a bit of a, a kind of 335 thing um and i had a chance to play it was a 59 and a 64 in the same shop recently in france about a year or so ago and i very much honed in on the 59 just out of kind of i don't know devotion i guess blind devotion the idea that 59 was a was a good year um well that's the thing because that's because i because jim mentioned the same thing the cat whisperer mm, he uh yeah. <laughs> he, he's like everyone wants the 59s he goes because there's the thought that every they were doing everything right then just like yeah, they were yeah. doing the les pauls right the 59 the 335s he said they call them the burst busters i'm like <laughs> i didn't know that that was a thing but apparently it is but i he lent me his 63 no 62 mm. Yeah, it was a 62. It was the last of, uh, apparently, early part of 62. They were still making a few dot necks. So it was a dot neck 62, yeah. right? Cool, and yeah. uh, I'll tell you what. I, you know, I, I had 335. I first bought my uh, 335 back when I was in, in high school because um, mm. I was after the Larry Carlton, Robin Ford yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And I love those. Those 80s 335s had those Tim Shaw pickups in it, and they, yeah, they, yeah. they sound great. And unfortunately, mine got stolen, but whatever. So, mm. but this guitar, that 62, man, that the neck pickup on that thing, it was like, it was otherworldly. It just sounded yeah. so good. I'm glad he made me give it back because I, you know, the mind starts to wander. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. They went, they went through a bit of a strange period, didn't they? I mean, the next sort of profile changed shape fairly drastically. Yes. You know, between in those kind of early 60 years. But, um, the other one he had, this guy had for sale in the shop, was a 64 that was, again, hideously overpriced, purely by virtue of having come out of the factory the day after Clapton's. Ah, yeah. So it had, it had the kind of Clapton thing attached to it. But that was such a good guitar, you know, and it was a fair amount cheaper than the 59, you know, purely because it wasn't a 59. Right. Um, so, yeah, at some point, the 335 is very much on the radar as well. But, um, yeah, man, it's never-ending. It's... Um, 
again, I had a conversation with my wife the other day saying, if, if money was no object, what would your kind of, what would your passion be? You know, would it be kind of houses dotted all over the world or, or fast cars or whatever? I was like, I would genuinely quite happily live in a hovel if I could just keep buying guitars that I want. So it's, um, I, I kind of was hoping I would grow out of it at some point, but I've very much grown into it. So yeah, well, take it from me. It never ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting because I'll, I'll get to the point where it's like, oh, I got enough. You know, I like what I have. And then, yeah. you know, and that'll last for a few months. And then, yeah. and then just like literally at random, I'll go down the rabbit hole, as you said. It'll be some, yeah. you know, video I'll watch or it's some guitar that they'll send me. And I'm, wow, it's still sending me guitars during COVID here. Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, wait a minute, what, what's this? Or I'll, yeah, yeah. or I'll come across some YouTube video of some old dude playing. He's got this particular guitar. I'm like, what? What? And then it'll just send me down the whole rabbit hole again. And, um, yeah, it just never ends. I mean, the only thing I will say is I, in the past, I have purged in order to get. But I've got other friends who oh. don't sell anything. I, I'm one of them. I can't get rid of anything. I have such remorse the moment anything gets let out of my sight. Um, I bought a guitar recently, um, unsurprisingly, something I've been doing quite a lot of recently. Um, I bought a Shinichi Ubukata. Yes, three five five. Which nobody knows what the hell that is. Um, it's a very limited edition Gibson made back in about two thousand and seventeen. Um, it's a signature model for a, a guy called Shinichi Bukata, um, who's in a Japanese band and obviously fairly big profile within Japan, but not really known outside of that. But Dave Grohl started playing them. Um, so they kind of took on a little bit of a life of their own, you know, purely by virtue of having been associated with Dave Grohl. Um, so I stumbled across one. I'd been kind of keeping my eyes peeled for a while and it was, oh man, I made such a mess of the situation. It was horrendous. So it popped up on reverb. Um, and a friend of mine knew I was looking for one. So, so kind of sent it in my direction, knowing how rare they only made 150 of them. So they really are kind of rocking all shit um, as it were. <laughs> so he, he sent, just sent me a link on Instagram. And then the only other message that accompanied it was go, 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 go. <laughs> Shit, shit, what do I do? What do I do? So I, I kind of panicked and I messaged the guy and made him an offer um, that I kind of lowballed him, which I still feel a bit a little bit bad about. But he was very accommodating. He said, look, I can't do it for that, but I can do it for this, which was only 200 pounds more than I'd offered him. And I am an odd and I knew I shouldn't probably be buying another guitar. So I thought, right, let's, let's sleep on it and see what happens tomorrow. It was still there tomorrow and it was still there the day after. And I convinced myself, utterly and wholly convinced myself that I was going to get a message off him saying, okay, I'll take your offer. Um, and I convinced myself of this for about three days until it went. And I was absolutely mortified. I was just gutted that I'd missed out. And not gutted that I'd missed out so much as just gutted that I'd been such a kind of dick to let it slide. <laughs> just over the take of 200 quid. Because stuff like that has happened in the past. I've missed out on stuff because I was too bloody parsimonious just to sort of stump up the extra cash and i conv convinced myself that i'd kind of grown out of that um yeah grown out of that phase but clearly not um i was i was gutted for about a week just absolutely gutted until the same guy that sent me the link initially tagged me in a post on instagram of a shinichi bukata for sale in another in a shop this time not a private sale um down on the south coast of the uk um, funnily enough, for about a thousand pounds more than I could have bought it. Um, <laughs> a couple of days prior, clearly not, not to sort of, um, yeah, to give the guy any grief. He's running a business. He, he saw an opportunity and he went for it. And, and I was the, the poor sucker that then paid the price, literally, um, messaged him sort of with my tail between my legs saying, look, 
this is who I am. This is what I've done. I've been an absolute idiot. Um, is there any way you can just, we can work something out, you know? And to his eternal credit, he said, well, look, you know, I'm a business. I got to make a living. I got three kids to feed, you know? So I can't just give it to you for the price that you probably should have bought it for last week. Um, but have you got any stuff you want to trade in? So I had a, an ES339 um, that I bought a couple of years ago, which is the kind of smaller right. 335 thing. Um that I bought, I don't know why I bought it, and then I saw a picture of myself playing it at a show, and I looked like I was playing a ukulele. Um, so that kind of put me off the idea of playing it. So I thought, right, let's trade that in, you know. And I've not played the bloody thing in about three years, but as soon as I let go of that, I had such just dread trying, driving home as kind of like, what have I done? <laughs> and, you know, the, the reality is I've not given a second thought to that guitar. I've got this new guitar to keep my mind occupied. But right. the idea... The idea of selling, Jeff, just absolutely terrifies me. The only other guitar I've ever sold was a 1984 Charvel Model 4, ah. like a duo tone kind of, you know, changed tint depending on which angle the light was at. Um, and I, I never played that. It had ludicrously hot pickups. There's not an amp in existence that had enough headroom to take those pickups. Um, and I sold that because I wanted to, wanted to use the cash for something else. And then the moment that had kind of had driven off down the street, I thought, well, what if Steel Panther phoned me tomorrow? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't got a guitar for that gig, you know? So, um, yeah, I'm absolutely shocking at letting stuff go. It's, um, yeah, just and the consequence of that is just I'm going to be one of these people that one day they, they find the kind of the lunatic hoarders who right. die because a pile of guitars has fallen on him. So. <laughs> Guitar order. Probably, yeah, surrounded by cats. Exactly. Bengal cats. That I didn't make money off. So. <laughs> well, listen, my friend, it's been so much fun hanging out and talking. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I, like I said in my message, I'm incredibly flattered you asked me, so thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Huge fan. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And hopefully we'll be get to get to hang out at some point. Hopefully I'll get over there in November. And yeah, uh, it'd be fun to get together and cause some trouble. Yeah, too right. Well, happy birthday, man. Oh, but Again. thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's been a good thank one so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, long may it continue. Thank you very much, Chris. All right, thank you. It was a pleasure, Chris. Take it easy. Have a good one. Take care, man. Thank you. See you soon. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Or you'll hear me soon. <laughs>